Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where they've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else, and then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with Mm. other women and Mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Breakdown, the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories in bluegrass music, one iconic record at a time. I'm Patrick McGonigal, the fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band. And I'm Emma John, author, journalist, and all-round bluegrass novice. This week we're going to be talking about uh, the record Hazel Dickens and Alice Gerard by Hazel Dickens and Alice Gerard, not to be confused with their earlier record Hazel and Alice. This was uh, released in 1976 on Rounder Records, and it was actually released after the duo had broken up. Hazel and Alice were an unlikely pair, and they met in Baltimore in the mid-60s. Alice was from a middle-class family from Seattle, Washington, and Hazel grew up in coal mining country of West Virginia. And as a duo, they wrote and recorded songs that are still considered an essential part of the bluegrass repertoire, and they've gone on to inspire generations of bluegrass musicians and songwriters to embrace the difficult and personal subject matter. And on this particular record, they confront the issues of their time, uh, ranging from racial injustice to the hardships of being a working woman. I think it's a record that embraces what it means to be a woman, frankly. I mean, there are there, there are all sorts of tracks that, that just speak immediately to the, to the female experience. Working Girl Blues, mm-hmm. Mama's Gonna Stay... Mean Papa Blues, Rambling Woman, Mary Johnson. I mean, all these songs, uh, what's so exciting about it, really, is that they are all telling stories um, from a perspective that you just haven't heard in bluegrass before. In the early morning light I creep on down the stairs Hush you flow, keep you squeaking down my favorite track is Mama's Gonna Stay. Uh, it's an Alice Gerard song. It's beautiful. But the thing that really grabbed me right away in this song was that we have so many songs in the bluegrass canon that are about mom, but always from the son's perspective. You know, there's all these songs. You, know, you can think of the Stanley Brothers they sang so many songs about mom or mama's not dead or you know i heard my mama 
call my name in prayer, all these kind of things. And it's always from the male perspective, uh, kind of idealizing the mother role. And here we have such a gorgeous song about, uh, Al- clearly it's about her being alone in the morning and and kind of thinking about what it means in this quiet moment to be a mother. And smiles and tears and ready hair And I can't find my shoes And I don't know I don't know if it's my favourite, but it's definitely the one that had the most effect on me. I was completely devastated. The first, the first time I listened to it, I cried. I, I just found it yeah. utterly moving. Um, it, for, for the reasons that you say, that um, you're listening to this uh mother coming downstairs in the quiet hour before the children are up and um just taking in this this single hour she she says if i'm very still i can drain this holy hour if i'm lucky stretch it out to two and Mm -hmm. that thought of how hard life is for her um bringing up these kids and uh it's so poetic She says, uh, help you make your bed and put your clothes away. And right after she says, away, there's a stop and it goes into a small instrumental break. And it almost sounds to me like uh, like someone choking up. I think another critical part of Alice's story is the death of her husband, Jeremy Foster, in a car accident in 1964 that left her raising four children under the age of eight years old, uh, and it left her to do that by herself as a single mother. And I think that really comes through in this song in the, the kind of quiet melancholy and, and solitude of the song. I think the next song we should talk about on this, uh, on this record is West Virginia, My Home, mm-hmm. because that's a song that very much speaks to Hazel Dickens's real life experience of being a young girl who's grown up in West Virginia um, in the hollers and who has um, left home at 16 and went to Baltimore and found herself feeling pretty isolated she said in in her Mm. autobiography that that she was pretty lonely in the city there wasn't a lot of love lost between the city folk and the the hillbillies as they called themselves and uh and that she maybe even felt a bit ashamed of her her background of poverty uh, and didn't feel at home and, and wrote this beautiful song rest of her life I think that her upbringing in West Virginia really uh, had a huge impact on her and all of the work she did 
uh, as an advocate for coal miners. Um, and, you know, her brother died of the black lung. And, and I think that she was deeply impacted by not only that move from rural to urban, but also just the hardship of the, of the working West Virginian coal miner. Hazel died in 2011, and Ken Irwin, her partner, was also the founder of Rounder Records, so he was intimately involved in this album, and he has very kindly spoken to us on the phone to give us some insight into Hazel as a person and as a musician. said all about the music. She was one of the most selfless people that I ever met, one of the most supportive of other artists. She was a real motivator um, to other people. Um, Just one of the most incredible people I I ever met. You know, she was um, all about... um, emotion, you know, getting the feel. I mean, it was sort of an interesting combination where, you know, Alice had such a different vocal style and approach to the music than than Hazel. The other, another great song that I loved as kind of a feminist song is Ramblin' Woman, which the, the lyrics to that are so awesome about just this woman who's just saying, nope, I'm not going to be that stay-at-home person that you want me to be. Especially uh, uh, Hazel Dickens wrote it, and she uses the term home-loving man. You know, I'm not going to essentially be the wife to your home-loving man. And I kind of see that as, as like almost a direct rebuttal to the Flatten Scruggs song, Dim Lights, Thick Smoke, which also uses that term, you'll never make a wife to a home-loving man. Dim lights, thick smoke, and loud, loud music Is the only kind of life you'll ever understand Dim lights, thick smoke, and loud, loud music. You'll never make a wife to a home-loving man. And I feel like that woman in, in, in that dim lights, thick smoke is kind of portrayed as this sleazy, stay-away-from-her kind of woman. 
And this almost feels like to me, this is the woman's perspective saying, no, in fact, I'm an independent, strong woman, and I just don't want to have any part of this role that you're that you're trying to put on me. And I loved that. Absolutely. And it's there in Mary Johnson as well, which is essentially an anthem to all women who ever sit and drink in bars alone. And you have this woman, Mary Johnson, who's sitting in a bar drinking and she's saying, she's singing to the men around her who are all coming to chat her up uh, and saying, just because I'm sitting here drinking alone at the end of a hard day's work when my feet are killing me doesn't mean I want to sleep with you. Sure are thinking wrong And if you think you're reading want to In these big brown eyes of mine Oh well it's only a reflection Of the want to in your mind So we've got rambling women, banjo picking girl All these independent women doing it for themselves as as Destiny's Child would say. And what I think is really interesting is if you go back and look at uh, the al- the record that H- Hazel and Alice made before this, which was called Hazel and Alice, recorded two years earlier, I think. Uh, it, this one actually, I think this record feels like an evolution in terms of how strong they're willing to be about their independence. So in Hazel and Alice, you get songs like Custom Made Woman Blues, which include lines like I tried to be the kind of woman you wanted me to be mm-hmm. and you also get songs like don't put her down you help put her there in which these the songs in that record are trying to explain to men this might be why I'm behaving the way I am or why these women are behaving the way they are I feel like what's happened is women's lib has happened in real time and by this record they've just stopped apologizing I've seen better days Ain't a putting up with these I've seen better days Ain't a putting up with these Could have a much better time If men weren't so hard to please Cause I was born in the country He thinks I'm easy There was probably um, a pipe dream But I thought that they could almost be um, linked to being like female outlaws, and you know we were we were very excited about that and the attention that they got. I don't think that um, that Hazel was very moved by by that. Um, she just wanted to sing. She wasn't, you know, um, really career driven. We did feel that with the attention that the first one had and with touring that this could have been, you know, one of our biggest records to date. But that didn't happen because Alice decided before the record came out that she didn't want to record with Hazel anymore. Right. Now, before the record came out and um, we decided to hold up the record, um, hoping that uh, that something would happen and... Um, Marion and Bill drove down to the D.C. area to meet with Alice. I didn't go because I um, I would have been conceived as um, biased because I was going out with Hazel at the time. Just to clarify, 
Marion and Bill are the other two founders of Rounder Records with Ken Irwin, and that's Marion Levy and Bill Nowlin. I don't know what Alice thought, but I think, you know, she was married to Mike Seeger at the time, and I often wondered if if that had anything to do with her not wanting to, you know, continue singing with Hazel with all the attention they were getting. Because um, she, according to Hazel, she never, never told um, Hazel why she, why she had decided to um, to not sing with her anymore. So now we're going to hear a little bit from Alice herself. Emma caught up with her when she was teaching at a camp in North Carolina. Recording on all three. Um, great. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad we finally connected here. Yeah, thank you so much. You're very welcome. So we're going to talk about um, your record, Hazel Dickens and Alice Gerard, Mm -hmm. as opposed to your record, Hazel and Alice. (laughs) How did you come up with those titles? (laughs) It took a lot of creative imagination. I wanted to ask about your relationship with Hazel. Do you remember your first meeting? I, you know, p- other people have asked me that. I don't remember the first, the first time we met. I, what I remember is my boyfriend at the time telling me, there's this little girl with a great big voice and you've got to meet her, singer. And, and I just remember that's always stuck in my mind. And then, of course, I did meet her. And um, it was pretty great to, to finally meet the, the little girl with the big voice that, that Jeremy had been talking about. But we didn't sing for, together for a long time. I mean, I just sort of was in awe and kind of... She was definitely a mentor to me. I was really in the, in the learning position. I didn't sing that much and was, was kind of following her around, trying to you know, listening to Hazel a lot, before I ever opened my mouth with her. I do remember that it was at some party, I think, music party, of which there were many in the D.C., Baltimore area at the time, um, that somebody suggested that maybe we should try singing together, you know, just for fun. They just, you know, they struck up a tune, something, a song, and and we did, and, and then that was kind of the beginning of it. So you'd been primed to like her because people had said nice things. Yes, yes, of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what was it about your two characters, do you think, that, that meant that you became friends? Well, the music, for sure, brings people together and binds them together. Um, and it, it was an odd pairing, in a way, because she was a country girl from rural West Virginia and um, from a um, very working class family. Her family all worked connected to the mining industry and um, my, you know, I came up in a sort of a middle class urban environment, you know, and in Seattle, Washington, and California. That's where I grew up. And so we were very different, came from very different backgrounds. 
But there was something in Hazel that was open to this relationship, and there was something in me that, you know, was also open and, and wanting to learn and stuff like that. So that kind of worked, I think, to, to keep it connected. And, um, and I think also that she had had plenty of kind of questionable experiences as the chick singer in a all-male bluegrass band, you know, where you play the bass and maybe sing one song. And, and, and she'd had some, you know, bad experiences. And so I think that she liked the idea of another woman, you know, to, to work with. We, we weren't, we didn't think about it in those terms at the time, but there was something about that that I think that appealed to both of us. And, um, and we happened to be, at that time when we got together, sort of surrounded by very supportive friends, people like Lamar Greer and people like Mike Seeger and my husband Jeremy and um, Pete Kuykendall and Dick Spotswood and all the, the sort of young people who were around D.C. at the time. Um, and so it was, it was a nurturing environment for us at that time. You said you... But you saw her as a mental figure. What kind mm-hmm. of specific things were you looking to learn from her? Well, I just was listening to her. I mean, I didn't sing with her for a long time. I was just kind of going along, and they, she'd be practicing with this and that person, and we'd go along. And we would also go together in a group. A, a, a group of us would often pile into a car and go to the country music parks on the weekend up in Sunset Park and New River Ranch and those places and listen to bluegrass music. And so we hung out. And, um, but I didn't think at the time about, you know, working with her or even singing with her necessarily. I was just going to... And she, she was very influential on me vocally. And, you know, so it was, it was really pretty cool. You mentioned your husband, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. I've read somewhere and I thought it was really funny to read that you came to folk music when your boyfriend at the time Jeremy gave you a copy of Harry Smith's anthology of American folk music that was the big thing yeah that that is a six LP set so you must have known that he really liked you (laughs) well I guess (laughs) he didn't give it to me though (laughs) oh it was just a lend well he had a copy and then I, I, of course, I got one after that. But yeah, so but that was a that was a huge milestone for a lot of people at that time. That that listening to that was totally bombshell. It opened our ears and our eye, uh, our ears, to to some things that was just it was amazing. It was an amazing collection and so influential on so many people at that time. People have to understand that we were listening to everything. We weren't just listening to bluegrass. We were listening to folk music. We were listening to old-time music, traditional music. I mean, like, like the stuff on the Harry Smith anthology. We were listening to all that stuff. And, and then when we moved to, when we settled around in, in Washington, D.C., then there was this bluegrass not 
it's not a revival exactly, but just a lot of people. Because when people moved up from the south to places like Baltimore and Washington and just north of Baltimore, they brought their music with them. And a lot of that was bluegrass music or, you know, traditional fiddle and banjo music. And so that's what they played. And so every little corner bar in Baltimore, every... There were little taverns all around in the country, around D.C. and Virginia, Maryland, and there were just little bluegrass bands everywhere, I remember. And and (laughs) there were some rough places. But, you know, you could go see Benny and Valley Kane, Red Allen and Frank Wakefield often played. Um, People came through, and and you'd just go, and you'd listen to them. And it was a very exciting time, and there there were a lot of people trying to learn to play bluegrass music at that time and sing it. And they were going and listening to people and, um, and then coming back and practicing it. And, you know, and, and on the weekends, all we did was we had music parties. You know, we'd get together and just play music. And that was what we did. And, so, and I was practicing some. I, I tried to, uh, I, I got Lamar to show me a little few licks on the banjos, bluegrass banjo, but... I had started doing sort of clawhammer banjo before that, and I was more doing that. And I, you know, it was the vocal stuff that really interested me. The phrasing of singing, I mean, Bill Monroe, and, you know, just, this was, uh, and I was listening to a bunch of women, too, like um, Molly O'Day, Wilma Lee Cooper, Olabel Reed, um, Cousin Emmy, Lily Mae Ledford, the Concrete Girls, just so, so that I was listening to a lot of those people. There weren't a ton of women bluegrassers at that time, but Wilma Lee Cooper was one. I saw her a lot. She came to the park, she with her husband, Stoney Cooper, and <clears throat> I loved her singing and guitar playing. Then when I started singing with Hazel, we just sort of did it for fun, you know, and then, I don't know, maybe somebody, I forget exactly the sequence of events, but somebody said, hey, you guys should do a record or something like that. And that might have been Peter Siegel who produced the first Folkways record of, of us. So it was never a plan for it to be a career for you? No, we didn't, no. I mean, Hazel was working in a factory. I was raising children, you know, and we did, you know, I mean, maybe there was, maybe Hazel was harboring some secret thing, but, you know, this kind of music music is not going to, you're never going to quit your day job (laughs) for this. (laughs) It's more in retrospect that we realize that, um, yeah, this we, we did something, we embodied something that was pretty special in the bluegrass scene. It was an all-male-dominated scene, and they were used to their women, you know, bringing them the coffee and cooking the meals and playing the bass and singing one song, never being a full partner. It wasn't something she was fighting, obviously, at the time, you know, but I think she harbored some... Um, it, it was hurtful. I mean, you know, you can't, 
you definitely get the feeling of that hurt coming out in some of the songs that she yeah. wrote. Well, the coming out part, I think, was kind of, was a result of a tour that we both started going on. The tour had different names. It was a Southern Folk Festival. It was, um, it was a Southern Folk Cultural Revival Project. And so we just went around and did that. So because of the fact that it was conscientiously, tr consciously, I mean, trying to talk to the struggles of working people, we kind of became, as they say now, woke. I mean, I did, for sure. And I think what happened with Hazel was it, she had this inside of her, but it just gave her permission to speak it. And that, that's when she really started writing songs, and I started writing some, too. I feel the shadows now upon me And fair angels beckon me Before I go, dear Christian brother Won't you come and sing for me? Sing the hymns we sang together That plain little church with the benches all warm There's somewhere it's chronicled, but I can't off the top of my head remember the exact dates of, of the stuff. We made the, the first Folkways album, which was the, the one with the weird colored cover of, the two, of our two heads. Somewhere in that period of time, my husband was killed in a car accident. And I think that things kind of came to a stop for a while. I didn't have family right around me. My family was all out west. But the music community really rallied around. And um, so it was, it was a very difficult time. But, and you know, I got through it with help. And, um, but it was hard because I had four little kids, you know, they were, they were little at the time. The youngest was still in diapers. It was hard. But it didn't change, but music was, was kind of a way of dealing with it, too. So it, I would never, I mean, it would have been way harder without the music. Faces no more I'll see Until we meet where there's no more sad partings Won't you come and sing So Hazel and Alice came out, or you, you made Hazel and Alice, and then, um, and then later on, a couple of years later, you come together and you make Hazel Dickens and Alice Gerard. Now, what had, had anything changed in that, uh, from a musical perspective in that time? Because it is such a different record. So the first one we, we did, it was much sparser than the second one. We did it, and we did it in a friend's basement studio, Dick Drevo was his name, and lived around Washington. And, you know, a few of our friends, like Mike Seeger and Tracy Schwartz and uh, who else, played on it, you know, 
but we also did some things, just the two of us. And I learned a few guitar breaks and things like that. So it was much, we didn't have a whole big band. And Lamar has always played with us. He was part of that whole scene when we were all hanging around together and playing music. This is Lamar Greer. Lamar Greer, yeah. Um, and then the second Rounder album involved more people. And we tried different things. I, we played the song with the piano and the kazoo and all that stuff. I want to say Papa's on the housetop, but that's not it. Nice like that. <laughs> nice like that. <laughs> Which I think originally came from the Harry Smith anthology. We mined that thing. Really nice like that. We didn't, at the time, call ourselves feminists. We didn't, and we were kind of clueless in some ways. We, I know we were very surprised when we went, we went up to somewhere around Boston to do a concert, and we walked in, and there were just hundreds of women just sitting on the floor and in chairs and stuff around, and it was like, what's going on, you know? We got smart at some point, but... We were a little bit clueless in the beginning. <laughs> and what kind of response did you get from the old school bluegrasses, from the old guard? Well, uh, Bill Monroe. I mean, he, we were very close to him, and he was very supportive of us. I mean, he was, you know, he had, I, mean, I know he had something of a bad rep with women, but he always treated us with great respect, and he really liked us, and he liked our music. And, um, and, and of course, the, the sort of young bluegrass people like Pete Kuykendall and like um, the ones, Lamar and people like that, they were very, very um, respectful of us and very encouraging listening to a song like mary johnson mm -hmm. made me feel that that might have come out of experiences that that you and she had had you know traveling the circuit sitting at a bar and getting chatted up by guys <laughs> who thought they you that you were going to get taken home because yeah. you were a musician and right you were no a woman. <laughs> that was a response to a song called i think it was called the want to in your eyes yeah. Uh, I forget who did it, but Conway Twitty or somebody, maybe? I We could look it up. But but anyway, I heard that song and I thought, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Here's the answer to that. <laughs> I see the sparkling little diamond on your hand. It's plain to see that you already got a man I can tell you're not about to fall for any of my life I see the want to in your eyes Well, you remember when Kitty Wells did the uh, uh, 
It wasn't God who made yeah, Donkey Kong Yeah, it wasn't Kong. God. I mean, that was that was an answer to that that other song. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a grand old country tradition. So before we wrapped up the interview with Alice, we wanted to listen to and talk a little bit about one of the most impactful songs on the record, which is the very powerful Beaufort County Jail written by Alice Gerard. So we're going to talk about that one for a minute. black woman in a white man's jail. You know, she's clearly singing about many layers of injustice. And and a specific injustice. She's This is a song about a particular incident that was happening right around the time that they were writing and recording. The story of Joanne Little, who was a 19-year-old serving time in a, a North Carolina county jail for breaking and entering, apparently, um, and who killed a prison guard resisting a sexual assault against her and her trial became this major civil rights case which became a national cause and in the in the liner notes to the record uh, Alice Gerard says that you know she's referring specifically to an Angela Davis article that was written in Miss magazine The most probably the most challenging yeah. work on that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it was very, very topical at the time yes. because the court case was just happening or had just happened. It was right around that time. I, I don't remember the exact date, but <clears throat> yeah, it had just happened. And, and 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 you know, unfortunately, it's still you know it kind of comes back today with the Black Lives Matter movement to speak to conditions today, too. It is, when you sing Beaufort County Jail, it's the rawest, I think, I've ever heard your voice. Yeah. There's something, it's, there's something incredibly raw and powerful about yeah. the way you sing it. Yeah. And about the music itself, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I really was thinking in terms of some of the old sounds of, of, um, black banjo players and and singers where you know you it doesn't necessarily follow a certain format you know and uh, and also I love the the way Penny Penny Seeger was the one who played dulcimer on that Mike's younger youngest sister who's passed now but I thought that was really added to it a great deal too this that, that kind of um, drone sound of the dulcimer really was neat yeah I, I like that song a lot and I I don't do it that often but I'm kind of I've started to kind of it's, it's I had to sort of relearn it how did I do that what but I sang it for a couple of things and I'm trying to sort of maybe bring it back into my repertoire a little bit because it's it is timely now 
Given this record was made 40 years ago, do you feel frustrated at all at how slow bluegrass has been to become more inclusive, both to women and to people of colour and to LGBT people? Yeah, I mean, it's been very slow. There have been some things lately in the past year, though, um, that I think are really good. You know, I, I remember going to IBM in the A this year, and I was part of the um, Shout and Shine thing that Justin Hiltner put together. And then I know Saf, Saf, the San Francisco Pride Parade, you know, had the, the whole bluegrass contingent from the um, California Bluegrass Music Association. And I know they had some problems with it. You know, some people quit. But then what happened was a lot of young people joined. And so I think it's, it's going to change. It's going to keep on changing. But it's taken such a long time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it has. Does that surprise you at all? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> because it feels like we're still talking about women in bluegrass. Well, and we're going to be talking about it for, you know, a while. This was the last album that you made with Hazel. Um, what triggered your separating and going your separate ways? Um, well, we'd been doing it for a long time. And I was sort of feeling like I wanted to do some other things. And that was the main thing, really. And it unfortunately, it, it kind of created a a rift for a while but then we got it back on track so <laughs> she was disappointed that that you weren't yeah, going to keep the she band was, together she, she wasn't ready and I, and apparently all the rounder people came down to try to talk me out of it i don't remember that i think i've sort of blocked it out or something but but i was just like okay but uh, she but she you know she really started her own career after that, too, and, and was very successful with it, I think. So it wasn't a bad thing for her, but it probably was bad timing. I mean, I'm not known for my good timing, because we were sort of on the cusp of something, and that's what the rounder people were saying, you guys, uh. But I'm kind of, I can be pretty stubborn sometimes. So, but we, you know, we did a reunion tour, and that was the first time we'd done, you know, something together in quite a while and that was like, literally decades wasn't it well it was in 90 was it 95 or 6 or something like that so yeah and um and it was great it was really fun and then we did occasional things together after that but you know we were friends and and I sang at her funeral and it was very sad and 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 it, I felt bad because she was she was part of our family, you know. And so for a little while, she just didn't. She just kind of stayed away from everybody, including my kids, which was a little difficult. But then we got back on track, so it was good. She come over every Thanksgiving. We'd have it with Hazel, and she and I would go out and eat at a restaurant and Christmas and stuff like this. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this chat. You're so welcome. It was so nice to meet you. And it's lovely to be here in the Appalachian Mountains with the thunder rolling in the background. I don't know if, if our microphones have picked it up. There's genuine Appalachian weather it's happening out there. Absolutely. It's mountain weather. You know, and it's been doing that all day. Like Last night, there was a huge rainstorm. And then it 
this today all of a sudden and the sky got black and the thunder rolled and the rain poured down and then the sun came out and it was really hot and now it's raining again. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Breakdown. Uh, thank you so much to Alice Gerard for sitting down with us and telling her amazing story, uh, as well as Ken Irwin for talking to us on his harrowing drive home. Uh, we also couldn't have done this podcast without the great research and writing of Murphy Henry in her book, Pretty Good for a Girl, a book written about the women of bluegrass, and The Working Girl Blues, The Life and Music of Hazel Dickens, written by Hazel and Bill C. Malone. Both of those books are published by the University of Illinois Press. Thanks for listening.